You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to invite you now uh, to resume something we left off of before the beginning of the summer as we finished up in the seventh chapter of Matthew. We're going to pick up in the eighth chapter. And so uh, a couple of quick things. First of all, you will see if you don't have a, a smartphone or a device that will get you access to a Bible, there's, you'll see a paperback Bible in the tray in front of you and we'll be in the first of the four Gospels, the good news of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that is Matthew, which is actually the first book in the New Testament. And as is our custom, we try to walk through books of the Bible together as a church. That's kind of the, our primary means of spending this time together. And, and that protects us in many ways. That protects us from an agenda uh, that, that maybe any one of us might set, but instead it lets the Bible set the agenda. And that it lets the Bible kind of set the pace and trajectory for the things that we're talking about and the ways that our church is being formed by God's Word in this. And so I want to invite you. Uh, we're going to pick up where we left off in Matthew chapter 8. And while you're making your way there, I'll do my best to give you a recap of where we've been and kind of a, a, an explanation of, of where we will be in chapter 8. Now, Matthew, one of the apostles of Jesus, has been introducing us to Jesus by first telling us about his miraculous birth and the ways that it reflected the promise of God to, to, in, to in, in some powerful and, and mysterious way, have a, in the lineage of David, a son of David, who would, who would in, that, in that sense be a blessing for God's people and a blessing through God's people and his kingship to the nations. And so we're introduced to his miraculous birth and, and see these miraculous things that take place. In fact, he, he goes to be baptized, and, and we started to get a picture of what Jesus has come to do. And so that is we call good news. That word gospel, the gospel of Matthew, it simply means good news. We believe that who Jesus is and what he's done is good news, and Matthew is telling us about that. And that good news is even visible in the way that as he was baptized, John the Baptist says to Jesus, as Jesus requests that John the Baptist would baptize him, he's like, why, why, are, you, why are you asking me to baptize you? You, you should baptize me. Why, why are you in my place? And, and we see in the list of sinful people in the lineage of Jesus, Jesus finds himself in the place of a sinful group. And even in his baptism, he's saying, I'm going to be in the place of sinful people. And you can even hear John the Baptist uh, even protest. Well, why are you in my place? As if to wonder what it is that Jesus has really come to do. And, and Matthew regularly introduces us to Jesus by introducing us to Jesus, or excuse me, introducing us to people that don't get Jesus. And so Jesus becomes a public figure. We see in chapter 4, verse 23, that he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, hear that? The good news of the kingdom. That is the kingdom that he was bringing that was different than any other kingdom that's ever existed and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. It says that great crowds began to follow him even. And then the very next chapter, beginning in chapter 5, 6, and 7, we have the most famous sermon ever recorded known as the Sermon on the Mount. And that's where we wrapped up the, uh, this last spring. That is this, this most famous sermon about who, uh, where Jesus teaches about what it means to be a disciple and, and begins to teach us to, to see what his kingdom will look like. In many ways, it's upside down, and, and he uh, tackles a lot of 
sensitive topics, I would even say. But the very last bit we find in chapter 7, beginning in verse 24, it says, Jesus closes up this most famous sermon by giving a little parable. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And the conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount is like this. It says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And so the most powerful thing that stands out to these people as they heard Jesus' great teaching was in fact that it was powerful, that it was somehow with authority. And so we're going to get a lesson about what that looks like all the way up to the very last story, the very last verses of the entire gospel in chapter 28 are leading up to that very thing. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. This is where this ministry started, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. It says, and then when they saw him, that is, that he had, they saw him resurrected. They saw his resurrected self. They worshiped him, but then even then still some doubted. And listen to what Jesus says. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here the, the gist of the story that Matthew is telling us about Jesus that is good news. There is one who has come, God himself, and has taken on flesh in Jesus. And he wields the very power and authority of God on earth. Now we saw that in Matthew 5 through 7 because in the story of God's redemptive history with God's people, there's a particularly important figure. His name is Moses. And he came along and brought God's word, namely the law, that is the Ten Commandments, by going up on a mountain and sharing this law, that this guidance for living, this good life that God offers to his people in a way that they will live that reflects his goodness and character in the world. And so also Jesus taking on flesh, and also taking on the authority and power of God also ascends a mountain, as if to, to perk up our ears to go like, oh, I think I've heard this story before. An important person who delivers God peop God's people delivers an important and an authoritative word from a mountain. You're meant to go like, I think I've heard this story before. So God's power and authority takes on flesh. It's visible in his teaching, but Beginning in verse 8, excuse me, in chapter 8, where we will read all the way to chapter 9, you get, you get the second phase of the power of God demonstrated on earth, and that is the power to heal. So, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 8, as we listen for the power of Jesus, let's read together. When he, that is Jesus, came down from the mountain, hear it, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, 
you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word. And healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. We believe this is God's word and I pray that it would become more than ink on a page for us today. But it would be the very voice of God for the people of God. I want to demonstrate for you maybe two things the lessons of Jesus' healing, and then secondly, the purpose of Jesus' healing. I think we find that here. I want to walk through these three accounts that is the first of ten healings that happen in the next two chapters, chapter 8 and chapter 9. Now, they're broken up into three sets of three, in which case one case, in which of the, one of the healings is kind of two. Uh, it's, it's, it's one story, but two different miracles. And so we see three different sets of three miracles over the next two chapters broken up by two different passages about discipleship, following Jesus. And in this first section of these three miracles of healing a man who had leprosy, of healing the servant of a centurion, and then healing the mother-in-law of Peter, I think we learn some lessons about Jesus from his healing. And then lastly, we, I believe, see the purpose of healing Jesus is known in the region already for his teaching and the proclamation of good news, the good news of a coming kingdom. And that declaration and the way that he is known is also accompanied by great acts of miraculous power, all of which point 
to the teaching and preaching and healing that comes with the authority of Jesus. Now, before we begin, I, I want to start there. I, I, I tried to show you how one of, the, one of the main points that Matthew is trying to make, and remember, I, I show you, even it's, it's where this story is going to end. In fact, the very last words that we have from Jesus are, all authority under heaven and earth has been given unto me. And, and I want to start there. I know for many of you that that word power and the word authority already are, are abrasive to you. In many ways, as a culture, we are very, very bad at talking up about power and authority. In many ways, we don't really know what to do with it. And so when we see something powerful, we tend to like break off into two extremes. And so for you, this may be jarring. But, but in many ways, I, I won't apologize for that. Matthew intentionally tells us stories of the words and acts of Jesus that are by design jarring. And so in some sense, if, if, you, if, you find, if you're kind of shocked by the words of Jesus, in many ways, that's evidence you're actually listening to them. In fact, if they don't shock you, I might even urge you to consider whether or not you've actually paid attention to them. But often, even now, as a culture, as we talk about the authority, we, we tend to dissect authority and power in order to understand it, and then ultimately even to undermine it. And why is this? Because in a sinful, broken, and fallen world, everything, even power, can and is used for broken means. So, as a result, over the last couple of centuries, we try to dissect all of society into two different categories, the powerful and the powerless. And to, to you, I would say that might be a helpful tool to understanding the dynamics of the, the way the world works, so long as you also do it to Jesus. If you're going to break down all of existence into two categories, and think that's how you can understand it, the powerful, right, the, the bourgeoisie, and the powerless, the proletariat, if, if that's how you can understand all the world, it might help you, but just make sure you also apply that lens to Jesus. And see what you behold when you see the powerful Jesus and how he deals with us in our powerlessness. And that'll mess you up. And so we have lessons of healing. Lessons that I want to encourage you might redeem even for you power and authority. Because I know maybe in your own life, power has been wielded against you to harm you. I know all of us have stories like that. And yet, in many ways, those are meant to serve as a backdrop. I would never dismiss those. I would never try to, to make light of those. In fact, those are, those are worth remembering because they serve as a helpful backdrop for the power and authority of Jesus. So, look at the lessons, not only of authority, but the first comes in the cleansing of a leper in the first four verses. Here's what I would tell you is that he, Jesus heals in order to restore people to a holy God and to a merciful community. That first story is full of amazing kind of twists and turns. It says that when he came down from the mountain, remember Allah, Moses, and his authoritative word, great crowds followed him. And, and it says, then a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will and as if, in a, what's a, what a powerful command, be clean. So just stop for a minute and hear the kind of the backdrop of this. 
For this time and place in the world, the the word leprosy or a leper uh, probably served as a category for all sorts of other skin diseases that at that time they had no knowledge of and certainly no cure for. But leprosy, even through the Old Testament, would would have been something especially powerful. There was no cure for it, and it was devastatingly uh, it was it was devastating to the to the body, but it was also devastatingly contagious to the people around them. That is, since they weren't didn't quite understand what causes it and how it spread, that that the best they could do is just simply dismiss them. And there's an allowance in Deuteronomy and Leviticus for how it is that the community loves and cares for these people, but in a way that's very painful. It separates them. They're carrying in their own body the marks of sin and uncleanness. And that separates them not only from being able to be in communion with God through sacrifice, but also communion with other people because in many ways they're could be a harm to other people. But, but notice, each of these healings points to something about the character and the existence of Jesus. And this healing points to his character both existentially and even infinitely. So knowing that a leper, for example, is a, would be a harm to other people, and, and in order to protect God's people, these, these people would have been separated from the people, but also unable to, to go into, uh, say, for example, go into a, a gathered worship where they would experience atonement and sacrifice for their sins because they had to be separated. And so in that sense, they were, they were like separated from others, but they were separated from God because they couldn't experience the, the atoning work of a, a sacrificial offering on their behalf and, and for the sake of their own sins. They're separated from people and from God. But look at this story. The first thing you notice how, just ask yourself, it says, it says great crowds followed him. Now, it doesn't give us a number. Sometimes it gives us a number. But just in your mind, whatever comes to what is a great crowd? And now, listen to what happened. It said that the leper came to him and knelt before him. So this person who was intentionally separated from people just barges through a crowd of people with probably the obvious marks of his condition all the way up to Jesus. And it says he kneels before him. It says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. That's the first shocking thing. This person who was toxic and dangerous to the people around him forged through a crowd of people just to get to Jesus. But listen to what happens after that. He says, will you, like, Lord, will you? If you're willing, I know that you can make me clean. And then what does it say in verse 3? Jesus stretched out his hand and did what? Touched him. Now, again, in that same story of leprosy, if you went back to Deuteronomy or Leviticus, you would understand there's, there's not only rules for the person who has such a contagious disease, but there are rules for the people and how they deal with them. Namely, if you were to touch that person, you would, this shouldn't shock anyone, you're all kind of experts in this, they, they would be in, in, in a sense of quarantine, right? You need to stay away from other people until you can offer yourself to the priests as a, a proof that you're not contagious as well. So, in that sense, there's not only a powerful act of faith in this man walking and barging through a crowd of people, but also Jesus, who touched him. It touched him. And I want you to see the good news in the middle of that. Jesus' cleanness is infinitely more powerful than our filthiness. What a beautiful picture in many ways, of the toxicity of our sin and how it separates us from God and others. 
and the perfection and righteousness of Jesus that swallows it whole. And what you would expect, knowing the story of such a contagious and dangerous illness, namely that the clean and healthy person would be infected by the sick person, that isn't what happens. Did you hear? The opposite takes place. The cleanness and righteousness of Jesus infects the person who is unrighteous and unclean. It overwhelms it. It overpowers it. And the power of Jesus here is shown in how he is able to make clean those who are unclean. What a good news for you and for me. I know for many of you, you think maybe your own story is too awful. There's no way that, you could, there's no way that your story could have a happy ending. Your mistakes are too great. The things that have happened to you are too awful. There's no hope for you. And in many ways, right now, you're probably thinking, like, like most people might think, like, I'm too much of a mess. Not for Jesus, you're not. And here's the truth. You actually might be a dumpster fire. Like, you might be a toxic landfill that is a danger to everyone around you. And you, I'm, I, hear, I mean, this is true. Let's, the... The depth and weight of the condition is not minimized here. In many ways, it's drawn, it's drawn to center stage. You might be a toxic landfill, a harm to yourself and everyone around you. You might make a mess of everything that you touch, but not Jesus. His righteousness and cleanliness, his perfection and goodness is infinitely more powerful than our filthiness. It touches him. It just touches him. Jesus says to him, now, see that you say nothing to anyone. Now, I'll draw very brief attention to this because this will come back later in the story. This is what we, this is what we see as the, the messianic secret that's found throughout the Gospels. It, it's simply a, a way to point to something that Jesus had something he came to do. He didn't want to be known as a healer only. He had a bigger mission Eventually, he would take center stage. And we just read a moment ago, the very last words of Jesus were to do what? Go, tell, lead other people into this, right? As if to say, my goal here isn't just to heal. My goal here isn't just to fix what's physically broken. I am going to fix what's existentially and eternally broken. And then, tell everybody. So you see this messianic secret throughout Matthew, Mark, and Luke especially as a hint. It's kind of Matthew tipping his hand towards, uh, you're meant to say like, well, why, why wouldn't he want, why wouldn't he want this man to like post that everywhere? Why wouldn't he want this man to tell everyone? It's like, because this is, a sm this is small. There's something bigger Jesus came to do. But notice what he does. He says that after then, you know, or after he's healed him, he says, now go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Did you hear it? Jesus' healing restores this man to right relationship with God. Now he can enter into and make sacrifice for his sins. Now he, he's encouraged to do so, and in fact, he's encouraged to do so as a proof for them. Some of the translations you may read it can even say that he, he went to the priests as a proof against them. As if to say, this is what your sacrifices were unable to do, and this is what Jesus was able to do just by touching me. And by the word of his command, be clean, he's now restored to God in light of his sin and even to a gracious community. Friend, if, if, I had to, if I had to share with you, like, what is 
covenant membership in a local church. And what is covenant membership in, in and through Connection Church? I would just give you this story. We're just the people who show ourselves to one another as a proof of what Jesus has done. That's all we are. We're just the people who are like, have you, have you seen what Jesus has done for me? Have you seen how he has overwhelmed my sin with his perfection? That's it. That's it. Don't be afraid of that. But instead, this is what gracious community looks like. We're the ones who say, me too. Look what Jesus has brought me out of. Look what Jesus has restored me from. Look what Jesus has healed. Look what Jesus is putting back together. And even though I still may be a dumpster fire, I make a mess of everything I touch. Not Jesus. Next, we see the story of a centurion servant. He heals Jesus just by the word of his power. Now, make sure you connect the dots here. Anyone who might tell you, I, you know, I like the teachings of Jesus, right? Um, it's, but I don't see Jesus or worship Jesus as, as, as Lord, Master, or Savior, or Redeemer. And so if you're not a believer, not a Christian, I'm really glad you're here. And I hope you would even say that with, with a great deal of honesty. Maybe you're, I'm curious about Jesus, but I don't know about, the, I don't know about singing songs and worshiping him and all. But, but notice that the power of his teaching is directly connected to the power of his healing. And we see this throughout these next two chapters, and especially right here. Did you notice how he healed? His word just his word. That was enough. And so Jesus, in this next story, heals the centurion, excuse me, his servant, in order to show the power of his word and to welcome the outsider. Now, there are two different times in Matthew where we, where we get this picture most profoundly. I'll say more about this next week, and we'll see in months to come. This one, and then a woman who comes as an outsider and begs Jesus, and Jesus makes a really awful comment and compares her to a dog, right? It's, it's, it's wild. But Matthew tells those stories intentionally to introduce us to Jesus so that we'll get Jesus. In order, And the way he does that is by introducing us to people that don't get Jesus and to kind of confound our understanding of who are the Jesus people and who are not. And one of the ways he does it, notice, he does it by introducing us not just to a Roman, or excuse me, not just to a Gentile, an outsider, but to a Roman, and not just to an outsider, and not just to a Roman, but a Roman soldier. And not just to an outsider who is a Roman and a soldier, but to a leader, a commander of other soldiers. If you think about it, in popular, in, in most of the misconceptions about who Jesus is in popular religion of that day, it would have been assumed that Jesus would have come to overthrow this guy. In many ways, you would think this is the last person who would want to face off against Jesus. Jesus is going to wipe this guy off the face of the planet. But notice, Matthew doesn't tell us that. Instead, Matthew says that for all the reasons you would think that this person wouldn't get Jesus, listen to what a powerful example he is of how someone actually does get Jesus. So much so that did you read in verse 10? Jesus makes a profound statement. And make no mistake about it, we'll see later in, the, in, later in the chapter, there were people in this crowd who were listening. He says, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Okay, Jesus, just throw all the religious people under the bus, right? And he demonstrates for us that evidently this Roman centurion saw and understood something about Jesus 
that confounded expectations. This Roman, this Roman soldier actually gets Jesus. And did you hear how he got him? He got him through his power and authority. Verse 6, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Side note here, it's not a point of the story, but notice how, I mean, isn't it a powerful example of what a good leader and caretaker is? Like, at the very least, doesn't the centurion paint a picture? He cares about his paralyzed servant, notices the pain he's in. In that sense, a good leader sees that they exist for the people they lead rather than vice versa. Verse 7, he said to him, that is Jesus, or, or, or uh, the centurion said to Jesus, or no, excuse me, Jesus said to all the hymns, he's in the hymns, Jesus said to the centurion, I will come and heal him. So already you see the compassion of Jesus, I'm going to come. And, and what bold faith of the centurion to in many ways correct and defy Jesus. Now again, we'll see this, I want you to pay close attention to this, you're going to see this again when a woman comes gets compared to a dog. Same thing, it's pretty powerful. People you think would not get Jesus are the ones that get it. He said to him, I'll come and heal him. And the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Some scholars will say that maybe he understood that for, the, for Jesus, a righteous rabbi, for him to even enter into the house of a Roman and a Gentile would make him unclean. But for whatever the case may be, notice it says he pointed to his authority as his way of understanding who Jesus was. In many ways, he got ahead of the people around him about Jesus. He says, I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to the other, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. He says, Jesus, you don't need to come into my house. I know how power works. The people with more power assert it over others. I get how that works. When I assert authority and power over here, people start doing what I tell them to do. The things under my command submit to my authority. Did you hear the connection he made? Jesus, you don't have to come to my house. You have authority to command this illness that paralyzes my servant. All you have to say, Jesus, is do this. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. Notice here that Jesus welcomed is infinitely more powerful than the world's rejection. For all of those previous reasons that I mentioned, this would have been the person you would expect Jesus to be against. He's, a, he's an outsider. He's a pagan. Not only that, but he's the means by which God's people at this time, the Jewish people, were, were under Roman occupation. They were under the thumb of these people. And yet, in some profound and mysterious way, that allowed this centurion a window into who Jesus really was. And notice, he doesn't go to Jesus like maybe some of us would. Like, oh, I'm going to get what I can from Jesus. I'll get the benefits of Jesus. I like his teaching as long as it serves me. Oh, by the way, tell me what I want to hear. Instead, he says, look, Jesus, you are in control. Notice, you, you saw that already. The leper did what when he came into the presence of Jesus? He knelt. And the centurion does what in the presence of Jesus? Jesus, you are the boss. What you say will go. And even though this is a person that at this time most people would have thought ought to stay away from Jesus, like keep this guy out, notice Jesus welcomes him and heals his servant. 
Because the word of Jesus to welcome is infinitely more powerful than what the world offers in rejection. Now, this might be a comfort to many of you who even now, I mean, there's, there's something that creeps in most of us, and maybe it, it, sometimes this is generational, sometimes it's cultural, sometimes it's just historic, it just happens. But I bet most of you right now, the minute you walk in, you kind of feel like you don't belong. That's what sin does. It alienates us from God and from others. We already saw that. And yet notice, Jesus' welcome overpowers. It's infinitely more effective. It's infinitely more fruitful than what the world might say about you in rejection. And the bombardment that the world has on you and I that we do not belong, that we are not good enough, that we have not measured up, right? And I, I used to say this, but I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant, but I'm usually like, hey, go look at the magazine rack next time you get a chance and just see all the stuff you'll never be. Um, I'm hesitant to say that because many ways, a lot of things on the, on the cover of magazines are inappropriate. So I wouldn't want to like, hey, go, no, don't actually. But, but should you dare Begin to see what the world says you're not and what you'll never live up to. And feel the weight of that, right? Feel the bombardment. Like, I need to buy this. I need to, I need to consume this. I need to acquire this. And all of that it can leave you and I feeling very small, insignificant, and hopeless. Like the good life's over there and we don't have access to it. And notice, Jesus' word of welcome to the person who should have been rejected overwhelms anything else anyone else, anyone else would have already said about that centurion. Later, we get explicit accounts of people who push back on Jesus and what he's doing. But you have to imagine the people who are kind of like, right? Imagine what they would say about the centurion and his servant. Why would you help him? Don't you know who he is? Don't you know his reputation? Don't you know what he's done? Don't you know what he represents? And friend, all of those things that you might even be able to put your name on, Jesus overwhelms. It says, this will be done for you. But look at the picture that's painted because of it. As he throws these people under the bus, very briefly, look here, it says, he gives a picture of this messianic celebration that's going to happen one day. I tell you, many will come from east and west. Right? This is poetic language from the Old Testament, that from the ends of the earth, Many will come, and they're going to be the ones that recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, for the Jewish elite around, that, around Jesus at that time, they would have been like, wait, that's our guy. Those are our people. Those are, wait, what do you mean the outsiders are going to be let in? And that, that's it. That's the picture. And the people who think they would be a part of God's kingdom, the people who think they have a rightful place, that they deserve there, that they have some merit, they're the ones, did you catch this, will be thrown into outer darkness. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Two things we get a picture of here, that as Christians we hold dear. And you may wonder why Christians believe this, and this is one of the many examples of why. First, we really believe that Jesus is going to come back and invite us, and the end, of the, the end of history, Revelation 20 and 21 and 22 tells us, will be like a wedding feast, over which, over which uh, the, the angel declares, blessed are all those who've been invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And we're going to celebrate in some miraculous way with Jesus and all of the redeemed saints from every tribe, tongue, and language. All of us. With Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here's the other thing. For those, for those that do not turn from their sin to receive this gift, again, unmerited. Remember, the centurion had no natural right to claim any sort of privilege before Jesus. And yet, for those of us who receive it as a gift, we have a banquet in his presence, waiting for us. We really believe that. 
And for those of us who insist on our own merit, and for those of us who insist on our own ability to fix things and make them right, for them it says that do not turn to Jesus as their one true hope. There will be a conscious torment, a place of eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now this shouldn't shock you uh, in one sense in that Jesus, this is not the first time he's offered shocking words for us, right? And so we believe this is a picture of eternal joy and happiness that awaits those who, of us who are united with Christ, right? Whose puri- his purity has overwhelmed our uncleanness and we will be with him forever. And this is a picture of the, what awaits those who have not turned to Jesus and experience eternal judgment apart from his presence. And I know what you'll say. You're like, are you saying... Are are you saying there's going to be a hell where people are tortured for not turning to God for mercy? I'm not saying that at all. Jesus is saying that. And like I said, this shouldn't shock us. He's already given us shocking words in the Sermon on the Mount about marriage and divorce, sexuality, certain ethics. In fact, there's no one who talks about hell more than Jesus. Now, I say that so that you'll begin to realize just how provocative it is to see Jesus for what he is here, that his words have authority. And maybe for many of you, you like the thought of getting the benefits of Jesus, but down deep, you don't really want to relinquish control over your own life. Oh, heaven forever? (laughs) Awesome. Who wouldn't sign up for that? I get to, I get to live in paradise forever. I'm in. But, but, just so you know, I get to say what goes in my life. And notice what a provocative way, as I said, that shouldn't shock you that he says it, but it should shock you that he's, it should shock you what he says. Jesus heals, Jesus restores by the power of his word so that you and I know we can trust his word and what he says about us is actually good. After all, in this sense, like, I wouldn't want you to get too hung up on what Christians have as a doctrine of hell. It can be overblown. That is that in the end, fear of judgment is not what motivates us centrally. The fear of judgment is the backdrop for which we celebrate the delivering and salvific work of Jesus. It's only the backdrop. And so I'll leave you with one question. Even as a person, I've wrestled with this as well. Like, can, is there, can a loving God... Can a loving God who is righteous and good send anyone to hell? And, and so I, I, here what I would just ask a question that would, that would maybe turn this on, on its head. Ask yourself this, because when we, when we, don't, we don't like the doctrine of hell because we know how we would run it. <laughs> we know how we would let people in and out if we were the gatekeepers, right? We would, we would do so selfishly, and, and it, would be, it would be corrupt, right? But think of it as like this is the righteous judgment from a perfect and holy God. In him there is no shadow of turning. And so ask yourself, who deserves to be in hell? Ask yourself. And that might seem overwhelming, but this is what will really blow your mind. Ask yourself this. Who deserves to be in heaven? Because if you're honest with yourself, you realize this list is long over here. I mean, just flip through a history book, flip through, I don't know, maybe your own family tree and your last, your last, I don't know, vacation album. Lots of people doing lots of awful things. But over here, when you ask yourself, who deserves the joy and the delight 
of the pleasures that are in God's right hand forevermore. And here's the problem. You realize nobody does. The more shocking thing here isn't that people who do awful things are held accountable by a just God. The more shocking thing is that God would let anyone off. That more than that, that God would take the place of those who deserve punishment. Look at the third story. Jesus heals to serve him and others who need healing. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. Jesus then, it says, touched her hand and the fever left her. And then she rose and began to serve him. Jesus heals in order that those he heals will serve him and then serve others who need healing. Did you hear what happened after that? That evening, the Gospel of Mark hints that possibly this, this same account happened on the Sabbath. And so it might have been that people were waiting until sundown at the end of the Sabbath because they're not allowed to carry anyone. And so at the end of the Sabbath, once the sun has set that evening, it's possible that that was when they started carrying people who were oppressed by demons and they cast out the spirits. And again, just, just so you make sure I wasn't overblowing or like overselling the case, did you hear how he did it? With a word. And he healed all who were sick. So look what happened. In some miraculous way, Peter's mother-in-law is healed, begins to serve Jesus, and as he serves Jesus, we assume, I don't know, maybe he made him a sandwich, right? And, and in some mysterious way, Jesus, fueled by the sandwich and the service of Peter's mother-in-law, begins to what? Welcome and heal all these other people who are oppressed. Jesus heals in order that we might serve him and we might serve others. Look at the lesson we learned from this. Jesus' gentle touch is infinitely more powerful than the world's destructive blows. There is no short list of harm and hurt that you and I experience in the world. You and I carry the scars of that. We limp along as a result of that. We have bruises and marks of the destructive effects of sin in our lives and the lives of others. But look at the contrast between the weight of sin, right? Her, her sickness, being laid up and sick. And again, Jesus does it again. There's laws that you don't touch sick people, right? Uh, even we have those kinds of laws, right? Don't touch sick people unless you have a medical degree, a, a coat and rubber gloves and a mask, right? Even we agree. Hey, easy now. Be careful what you touch. And what does Jesus do? In some way, we can't even imagine, tenderly touches, this is a lesson for me, a mother-in-law. This is helpful and redemptive for me, for those of you who maybe need to love your mother-in-law better. That's me. I'm grateful I was blessed with an awesome mother-in-law. Jesus loves this woman, touches her in a way that infinitely overpowers the sickness that held on to her. Jesus welcomes the outsider, but here it's, we find here he heals so that this woman might be redeemed to serve This as an application, I think, is a picture for us as a church as well. If the leper and the centurion tell us what we are as a church, namely we're the people who in our filth Jesus has overwhelmed and now we are welcomed back into a gracious community, if the centurion and his, and his messenger or his servant teach us that Jesus welcomes the outsider, that this is also what we celebrate, then also we realize that as a result of Jesus' healing, we are now set right. Our purpose has been restored. We are put back on task because of what Jesus has done for us. And so I don't mind saying this. I want you to serve. 
You'll see on that QR code, and you'll see it. I invite you, come to Inside Connection. I want, I want to invite you to serve. I want you to serve others. Every benefit that you have experienced this morning, if there is any, is a result of someone serving you. Sitting in a chair someone laid out for you, right? You're, you, you're following along with slides that someone else is serving us by, by moving along, who never want attention drawn to them. And I just broke that commandment right off. I apologize, right? You, had, you, had, you got to enjoy some coffee or something. Somebody cared enough to set it out for you. And I want to invite you to consider a mystery. The only reason they did that is not because you're particularly special, but because Jesus has restored and healed them. And we have this radically new view of the world. They're like, oh, I was dead in my trespasses. I'm alive now. I was sick. I was laid up in my sin, and now I'm not. And so, friend, healed people serve. They serve Jesus, we see literally, and serve others, and they're a part of this healing ministry. Now, I want to invite you, this is where, again, this, this has tangible effects. When you see yourself as a healed person, you see your life as a renewed and restored thing. It's like you're on, like, you're playing with the house's money at that point, right? I was sick a minute ago. Why wouldn't I serve? I was down and out. Why wouldn't I serve? Look, I served the person who healed me. I was on my way out of here. And I just want you to notice, this eats at any consumeristic view of the church for us. If you're looking for a church solely based on its benefit, then, friend, you don't rightly display the healing power of Jesus. And you've missed out on the most amazing thing, that you and I who were laid up and dead in our trespasses have been made alive because of Christ. And you're missing out. And secondarily, do you see that? Others are missing out on the healing work of Jesus. And so, friends, serve. You've been healed. If you've turned to Jesus and experienced forgiveness and restoration, serve in any way you can, in any way you see. When you serve others out of your own healing, you point to Jesus. And I believe in this so much that even if it's not this church, fine. Go belong to a church where you can serve, and you can serve others and not yourself in a way that points to Jesus. In many ways, it's an evidence of your healing. Maybe to you who are, who are serving faithfully, right? You're wearing T-shirts this morning as a result, right? And maybe you're weary and worn out from serving. Friend, look to Jesus. He won't leave you. Carry on. Your service is not in vain. It testifies to the healing that you and I have received. To the self-centered, look to Jesus for healing. He'll heal you and restore you in such a way that you will actually bless others. It will blow your mind. And if you don't believe it, look around to the testimony in this room. I was born a loud liar. And now because of Jesus' healing, I'm one of the people in this group designated with truth-telling. Huh? There are many in this room wearing T-shirts They used to welcome sin, and now, since Jesus healed them, they welcome sinners. Now, don't serve because of guilt. Did you hear that? That's the worst thing you could do. Guilt isn't our motivation to serve. Healing is. And if you see things around that need to be fixed, don't complain. You wouldn't even see that if Jesus hadn't healed you. Belong to a church that you can serve, even if it's not Connection Church. And if you say to yourself, there's no church that's right for me, Are you saying we need more churches? Well, we agree. We would love to have you help us plant another church. If that isn't the case, maybe look to Jesus for healing. Maybe experience the hope and joy 
that he has served us in ways we could never serve ourselves. The power of Jesus' teaching and the power of his healing are inseparable. In fact, he does so by the word of his power. Beware, don't reduce Jesus to a helpful teacher. You will have reduced him down to something that he is not. The power he has to teach is also the power he has to heal, to restore, to redeem, and to forgive. And while these are the lessons of healing, now we come to the purpose of healing. Did you hear the end of the section? Verse 17, all this healing, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. This is right out of Isaiah 52 and 53. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. He's not just a great teacher and a great example. He's our substitute. He's not just a brilliant miracle worker. He is our replacement. He has borne what you and I could never bear on our own. And each miracle teaches us something about sin, doesn't it? In the first story, we realize sin is contagious. It infects those around us. It, but it needs but the touch of Jesus to be removed. Sin is universal. It transcends race, ethnicity, nationality, and status. And all of those are pictured in the centurion and his servant. And while sin transcends race, ethnicity, nationality, and status, so does the healing power of Jesus. In the third story, you see that sin keeps us from our purpose. It debilitates us from being all that God's created us to be. And the tender touch of Jesus restores all of it. The purpose of this healing also teaches us about the community that we now have. We are the ones who are showing ourselves as healed to one another because we've been restored to the Father and to one another. And the second story, we are the outsiders who have accept, been accepted into God's family by what? The word of Jesus. He says, be healed, and it is. He says, be done, and it is. He says, Father, forgive them, and we are. He says, it is finished, and it is. We are the ones in the third story who are now serving Jesus, not because we're special, but because he's healed us. And when Jesus makes something, something right, there's always a purpose. Whether it's to, in this case, correct wrong teaching <laughs> or to repair broken bodies. Jesus has the power by the, just by the word that he speaks. Sin infects us and universally separates us from God. It separates us from one another, and it even separates us from our purpose. And yet Jesus' righteousness, by his word and touch, overwhelms it. It has complete authority over it. Not like the world's authority and power that, that harms other people for their ends. It's the kind of power that takes on, did you hear that? The iniquities, illness, and diseases that we need to be delivered from. And it removes all of those things in order to restore us to God the Father and the redemptive purpose now he has for us in the world. How do we celebrate this and how do we respond to this? Two things. We see it in this supper. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to celebrate communion. We're going to commemorate the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus right out of Isaiah 52 and 53 that is quoted here. The whole reason Jesus healed was to show that he is the one who would bear our burdens. He would take on our brokenness in himself. And the picture we see is this messianic feast in the story of the centurion. Did you hear it? And as we celebrate communion together and we reflect and prepare for that, one, we see the feast that we will be invited to enjoy forever and ever until the end of time. 
but two, we also see the means of our acceptance. And as we celebrate communion, we see what the prophet Isaiah pointed to, and we receive it as a gift. The means of our acceptance at this table is not our own merit, but instead it's the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, the righteous one who has borne our infirmities, who has taken on all of our guilt, who has taken on all of our sin, who has absorbed. Don't you love that? He touched the contagious leprous man. It's it's, what an affront. He touched, he grabs it and made it his own. And yet what happened? The toxicity of that disease didn't overwhelm Jesus any more than the grave has overwhelmed Jesus. But instead, the righteousness and justice of God has overwhelmed sin for the sake of sinners in order to invite you and me, the filthy, the outsider, and the helpless, into feast. Let's thank God for that as we pray. Jesus, thank you that you are good to us and kind to us. You are merciful to us in ways that we do not deserve. Thank you that, like the leprous man, you have willingly touched and absorbed our own infirmity and sickness. Like the servant of the centurion and the centurion himself, we are the outsiders who have been welcomed in. And like Peter's mother-in-law, we are those who were laid up by the effects of sin. And in each case, you have overwhelmed things with your power, not to crush us, but to heal us. I pray that this morning, that maybe for those of us who have never heard this good news, we've never considered that Jesus has done this for us, that his miraculous works were actually to point to his finished work on the cross, would you allow us with the eyes of faith to behold a great mystery, that through your broken body and shed blood, you have welcomed the infirm, the outsider, and the unclean. Maybe for those of us, we're feeling the effects of sin, even in our own bodies. Lord, I, I pray that you, just like, just like the, the servants, uh, the servant of the centurion, I pray that you in some powerful way, you, for, the, for the pain and suffering that exists in this room right now, God, if you bid it to leave, it will leave. And we long that you would heal, long for that to happen. But Lord, if you don't, we know that we will still enjoy the feast. We will still be welcomed in because of Jesus when all the wrongs will be made right and all that is broken will be made perfect. Lord, we celebrate this feast in just a moment. We ask that you would help us to prepare our hearts for it. Help us to sing this good news and receive it by faith so that as not only we sing and say this good news of Jesus, we get to see it as we consume and are nourished by the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, welcomed to a table we had no right to be at. Thank you. What a cause for celebration we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me this morning? We're going to sing together as we prepare our hearts for just a moment when we begin to take part in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus together.
You can take your seats. You'll see somewhere around you the elements for the Lord's Supper, communion, and prepackaged. You might have a friend of yours help you with fingernails to get them open. As you're doing that, I want to read to you from Isaiah chapter 53, the place that Jesus is, or Matthew is quoting about the healing ministry of Jesus. It says that all we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every single one to his own way. And yet the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that's before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Therefore I will divide him a portion among the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You see, this good news of Jesus is no accident thousand years before it was predicted. And so we celebrate communion, and then we not only get to hear the good news, we get to see it in some mysterious way. We see by a, a broken wafer and juice the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. And so this is for those of us who are repenting, baptized believers. If, if you're not, then uh, the New Testament says, I wouldn't encourage you to drink shame upon yourself, but instead it's for those of us who have been restored and healed by Jesus. And so if you would, just like Isaiah said would happen and just like Jesus experienced, would you break it? Surely he has borne our griefs and surely he has carried our sorrows. Do this in remembrance of Jesus. The night that he was betrayed, it says that after taking the bread and blessing it, he took the cup and blessed it as well. And invited his followers to take part in it in a way that would testify to a new covenant that is in his blood predicted here by Isaiah, for he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that has now brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Do this in remembrance of Jesus. Would you stand with me as we thank God for the broken body and shed blood of Jesus? God, thank you that in your goodness you have taken on the iniquity and infirmity and sin, its effects and all of it, and all the punishment that we deserve you have absorbed. Thank you that we get to celebrate this good gift in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.